Hello and welcome to the Performance Project Podcasts with the RCSA. I'm Ken Walker in Inverness. I'm an NHS surgeon, a trainer and educationalist. I'm a family man. I love to be outdoorsy when I can and occasionally play along in an amateur band. And I'm Stephen Yule, a husband, dad and academic psychologist and mentor working in Edinburgh and Boston. I love vinyl records, sport, wine and travel. If you're mid-career, you probably also have lots of roles, and sometimes we thrive on that. Sometimes it's a struggle, isn't it? In this series, we'll be talking honestly with thought leaders about the challenges of mid-career, and maybe we'll pick up some tips from the experts. We're thrilled to have with us Caroline Moulton, who's a hepatobiliary surgeon in Toronto, and she's also an academic with research interest in cognitive psychology and understanding surgical performance expert judgment, even professional identity. Carol, it's great to have you with us. Thank you, Ken and Stephen. It's uh, great to be here. And I guess a lot of us know your work, particularly from those early papers about decision-making in the OR. So you, you wrote in a very detailed way about types of decision-making and, and slowing down when you should, which, which we quote a lot, actually, in training and decision-making. And, and you wrote about surgeons' reactions to complications and error and I find that really really helpful so uh, I was wondering how did you first get interested in doing cognitive psychology research among surgeons yeah I think it's um I guess it depends on how far you how, how far back you want to go but I I do remember as a trainee in Australia watching surgeons as we were operating or making decisions and recognizing that there was something that I wasn't seeing. So something in their mind, something that they were thinking, something they were feeling that they weren't able to, uh, or they weren't clearly or wanting to express to me. So, you know, at at times I felt that the surgeons were feeling out of their depth or, you know, out of their comfort zone, and they weren't able to admit that or call somebody in. I could understand when we had complications and they seemed to react in a particular way, which I always found interesting to see how people reacted to these kind of major complications. Sometimes they would react and tell me a lot about how they felt, and then others seemed to be kind of cold as steel. So I think the interest for me started even as a trainee, looking at how the staff um, were, uh, you know, uh, behaving or... Um, how open they were or otherwise. And I started appreciating that there's the uh, there's a person behind there. You know, I, I was exposed also prior to that probably to a family who were always thinking about how people feel. I, uh, my parents were, you know, counsellors or clergymen and, and often would bring their work home. Mom and dad would talk about counselling with people and there would be books all, all around the the house that I'd pick up and read about, you know, how people feel. So I think that actually opened my eyes to understanding that there were, there was somebody behind, you know, all of these faces that you see at work. And even if they, they are high on a pedestal, there's still people at the end of the day. So I, I was always interested in the person behind that, you know, the, the godlike figure or the surgeon um, that we often put on pedestals. And so when I had the opportunity of studying it, uh, I was, I, I kind of grabbed it. I was doing a master's of education at the Wilson center in Toronto at university health network. And I was studying clinical or sorry, technical skills. And 
supervisor at the time was Richard Resnick, who who was encouraging me to do a randomized control trial looking at at uh, technical skill acquisition in the lab. And, um, you know, I think it was a good study that I did for my master's. I, I'm very happy that I learned how to do a randomized control tra- trial in the education world. It taught me a lot. But I was having conversations, kind of impromptu conversations with Glenn Regeer, who ended up being actually a PhD supervisor. He convinced me to... Um, or he actually didn't convince me. We had many conversations about judgment and decision-making that I could tell I was very much more interested in. And he opened my eyes to start thinking differently about, about what it is that, that I was, or about how I, I experienced or thought about expertise or how I was performing as a surgeon. So I think that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but I, I, my training, I think, started probably a long time ago as I started recognizing that there is often feelings behind a front, um, sure. whether that's my front and understanding that I had feelings that I wasn't showing or feelings from you know being very perceptive to to knowing that other people were experiencing something that they weren't sharing, admitting to, um, you know, telling me so. Uh, and then I, you know, I, I realized that we needed to, um, not only was it, I think, impacting surgeons wellness, um, it was impacting the way we taught, you know, the next generation of trainees, it was impacting, I think, patient safety. And so I decided to kind of take the leap and do a PhD in some area. I, I wasn't sure exactly what then, but I, I took the leap and had Glenn Regeer as my supervisor and, um, Lorelai Lingard is another supervisor who is very well known in her qualitative uh, research methodologies. And so I thought, well, you know, if I might as well take the leap and, and learn more about it myself and uh, was very interested in it. Yeah. So you had this real life interest from being in amongst it with your colleagues and then you had uh, these fantastic supervisors and then it became actually it became studying your colleagues I guess I mean that good I know right yeah you know absolutely I mean you know I, I went in to look at surgery in a different way so when you become the researcher you try to you can't take your old lens off but you do try to see things that you perhaps weren't noticing before and you make strange things that were not strange before. So you try to take on an, another viewpoint, I think, and try to see things that uh, perhaps you took advantage or took for granted before. So, yeah, I, I went in then and studied them from a researcher perspective and tried to see what it was. It, it came from a, um, a comment that often would come back to me when I started exploring the idea of doing a PhD in surgical judgment I would often say to people, what do you think surgical judgment is? Like, what's the definition? Because let's start with, you know, defining it. And people would have trouble defining it. And they'd say, you know, I know it when I see it, but I it, I find it hard to define it. Or they'd try to define it, but they'd scramble for words. Or they'd say something about decision making and yeah. making good decisions. But it was difficult for people to put their finger on exactly what they meant by expert judgment. And then you know, that's when I decided I'll, I'll go in and see what people mean when they say, I, I know it when I see it. And I under, 
understood there was a phenomenon that I was seeing then. And I knew how it was experienced because I was a surgeon, but there was this phenomenon that, that we became very interested in called, you know, we ended up calling slowing down when you should this phenomenon where a surgeon will kind of retract from a conversation that may be happening or need to have the music turned down or the, the room recognized something was happening in the field and would turn the music down uh, without even the surgeon asking or a trainee would say to another trainee, you know, not now, don't ask that question. It's not the right time. Or, you know, those kind of things were happening. And I could see that the surgeon now was focusing on something uh, that he or she recognized was important. So whether it was a critical point of the case or something that was uncertain or something that was unexpected, there was this sense that something just shifted. And so it was this, you know, phenomenon that shift from, from a relatively routine mode of the operation to more of a effortful mode of operating. And that shift is what we actually ended up calling slowing down when you should. Uh, and so for that, I actually had to say, okay, well, you know, if you, if you, if you did a PubMed search or, or any kind of Medline search on slowing down when you should, you would find nothing at that time. So, you know, we had to try to figure out where, you know, I'm a firm believer that anything you're interested in, somebody's already talking about. So I then had to just find the literatures that that uh, would help me understand what this phenomenon was all about. So our natural, you know, inclination was then to turn to the the cognitive literatures and try to understand what that tra- transition from a cognitive perspective is all about. And that's when, you know, I started thinking about cognitive capacity and and uh, attention capacity attention the relation between attention and effort and the idea of situation awareness understanding what you know what what we were perceiving in any given moment in time and how we understand what we're perceiving and that this whole construct of um situation awareness uh and then you know tried to tried to read a lot about all of those things and and pull out of any of those literatures things that I thought were relevant to surgery and and that's when you know we we kind of landed on this phenomenon of slowing down when you should and put a review paper around it to to bring in all of these different literatures but it was very much a cognitive construct at the at the time for sure sure but you wrote also about the the different triggers you know could be pre-planned or 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 just something unexpected didn't you but that was that's cognitive as well isn't it yeah so i think i think when i started asking then surgeons about the phenomenon i um i tried to bind it or or put a boundary around the or and you know you could talk about surgical judgment you could go into preoperative planning and and you know seeing patients in clinic and even you know looking through referrals or how you how you manage them afterwards so we decided to put a boundary around the operating room uh, for my for the purposes of my PhD, but it became very obvious as I started interviewing surgeons when I told them I wanted to keep it to the operating room, they would say to me, "I can't, I can't really talk about operative judgment until or unless you you let me talk about preoperatively what I do to get the patient to the operating room yeah. or how I think about yeah. the surgery preoperatively." Yeah. And from the, that qualitative research, at least structured interviews, you get uh, beautiful themes emerging, but you also had really nice strength of 
individual quotes. Uh, yeah. There's one stuck with me about, was it a senior resident who said, oh, I, I knew I should be slowing down and making a good decision, but I didn't want to in front of the people because I was supposed to be yeah. the, the senior resident and decisive. Or, you know, something there about performance anxiety and, and you know, yeah. the importance of just saying, oh, it's not about me and just putting the patient first. Yeah. Uh, really, really expressive. Yeah, and I think that's when it started shifting for me recognizing that it wasn't really a cog like a purely cognitive phenomenon that it wasn't something that just lived in our heads and that we take into the operating room as individuals but it was actually it was something that happened in uh, a social setting mm. and um and so therefore is sensitive to and influenced by the uh, culture and how the social kind of values are at that present time, right? And so, you know, when surgeons started talking about or using words like um, uh, reputation and ego, that was very uh, telling to me to kind of now start looking at, or I became very interested in starting to shift the focus from one that was quite cognitive to understanding what this other piece was about and, and what does this mean in terms of, you know, where does reputation fit into judgment? And I don't think we learned a lot about it. I think we pick up a lot of things when we get, when we go through our training, but it's not taught to us in any kind of explicit framework. So that something, if it's not explicit or made explicit, I think it's left to the individual to struggle with it, right? And to make sense of a feeling or yeah. or try to understand themselves how, and sometimes I think it takes years for people to get what these pressures are that they're feeling. So I mean, really maybe, maybe we've all been there and, 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 and to just read and know that this is a normal part of being a human being in that situation. Yeah. Really helpful. Well, yeah. I think one of the, the things that I realized when I was looking at, or one of the first studies that I did after my PhD was trying to understand the surgeon's reaction to complications. And, you know, in part it was because of a lot of, discussions that I'd had. I mean, when you talk about slowing down with surgeons, you you end up talking also about the failure of slowing down. So right. you end up talking to surgeons about their, you know, their mishaps and their mistakes. And sometimes I actually witnessed them in the OR as well when I was observing. So you end up, you know, talking about them. And then I started understanding as as you develop a an expertise in qualitative methodology, your your whole world starts opening up. Uh, in terms of what kind of questions you can ask. So, you know, trying to understand whether these reactions that I was experiencing were normal was a big part of that, the, the impetus or the motivation for that study. Um, I had a sense that it was normal, but I, I really didn't know how other people experienced uh, these reactions. And, you know, it was very much a relief to kind of realize that I was not alone and and no one's alone in it. I couldn't find anybody who actually didn't share those kind of same experiences. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah, and that's it's universal. Uh, yeah, I was reading Kevin Turner in Bournemouth's been studying this again recently in the UK, and it's just universal that we've all been through these uh, kind of reactions to complications, error, adverse mm -hmm. events, mm -hmm. and it's just so helpful to 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 have that mapped out. Yeah. Well, I, when I have it now, I mean, I, I don't, I don't experience them interestingly enough. I don't experience them as much as I used to, I think in mm. part because I know they're normal. And so the reputation part is lifted. And I think, you know, I also feel like what I try to do is 
is be mindful at, at all times. So mm. that helps me, you know, recognize that I did my best. And then the other part of it is, is that I'm not perfect. So as much as I try to be mindful and as much as I try to, to do the right thing or slow down appropriately, I do know that I'm not perfect. And so all of those things help have helped me actually come to grips with these complications that I, that I found quite painful and difficult to, uh, to take early on. But, you know, I think knowing that it's, uh, that, that it's very common uh, and there's not something wrong with you that, that it's not just because mm. you're not cut out to do this is very important. Yeah. I've had many people come up afterwards after talks and say, you know, if only I'd known this five or 10 years ago, I wouldn't have given up, you know, my practice or I wouldn't have retired or I wouldn't have, um, you know, stopped the emergency work or something like that. Yeah. So it is very important to know that we, and, and that I think that comes with the, the awareness that we're human under all of this, right? We're, we're human and, you know, trying to perform the best of our ability. Yeah. And I think that we get, we get taught how to operate and we get taught how to think, you know, some of our decision making's tested and, and, uh, and that's important, but it's, you're not really, the, the humanity part of it or these other things that we're talking about today is not, a, not a huge part of, um, the training. Yeah. We have a little nugget that we sometimes teach in our boot camps, that response to complications and, and what families want to know, which is that you care, did you best tell the truth? We call it CBT. And that's actually just resonating with what you just said about what we need to know about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Since, those earlier studies you've moved on a bit you've shifted your emphasis in 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 more recent studies you know what i think it, it's shifting constantly i started appreciating the that that initially it was not just a cognitive phenomenon or that expertise was not just or expert judgment is not just cognitive and so I spent several years, like many years, studying the social theories and three in particular, and then applied them to surgery, both in surgeons and in surgical trainees. The three theories are impression management, identity formation, and socialization. And so I started understanding how those three social theories come together to help me understand some of these pressures that we're feeling and how we continue to perpetuate the same culture in the next generation, you know, through socialization, the hidden curriculum and, and those kind of things. So I, I took years to study the social theories and looking at us as social beings. And then I started, um, you know, I, I recognized there was other things like a, like there were uh, physiological or emotional stress. And so I, I have, um, explored now stress in surgery um, from the perspective of the surgeon's subjective experience. So not through one lens, but through kind of a multidimensional lens to, of what stress means for uh, surgeons in particular. And then more recently, moving towards, I guess, a more philosophical lens of what expert judgment is and how sometimes that would that means that we have to be whole or we have to be aligned ourselves and, and kind of come to our profession with all of the bits in, intact, or at least understand that we're made up of many different bits that sometimes uh, are not always intact. But that's kind of how I've, I've gone through it. I've been the medical director in the last five years of ROR. So I've also been looking at 
the surgeon as a social being and and how maybe coming together during some of these timeouts or the the checklist at the beginning and then hand off um, either during cases or different times of our practice, how those are are moments where we also need to slow down and kind of come together from a situation awareness perspective and share information about patients and, and see it as something that we need to do as part of our expert practice rather than as something that we feel like we need to do just because the administration told us we need to. So trying to change the change the thinking around why we, you know, we come together at the beginning and do the timeout and have it so that people actually want to come and feel they need to come to share their expert judgment, right? It's it's, uh, yeah. it's a different way of looking at it. Yeah. I guess this might be music to your ears, Steve. It is, Caroline. This is Steve. It's great to hear you and just reflect on what you're talking about here, especially the theories. And I wanted to dig a little deeper in there because you mentioned at the start talking about the cognitive theories about judgment and so on and now the social theories and of course these are two different disciplines within psychology Mm -hmm. and I wondered if you had been able to blend those social and cognitive theories to get to a more holistic view of performance in the operating theatre or operating room. I mean that's a really good question and I struggle with it because I don't know that there is another way of looking at it other than to say that that there are lots of parts of us and I think what's happened through the education you know the educational lenses or the theories that have come about uh, in the last you know couple of decades in in education in medicine anyway is and I think even broader I think even in the university level or research level that people pull things apart because keeping them together and and recognizing the complexity is difficult and it's almost impossible. So the way we, and, and especially if you, if you want to study it through a positivistic lens, like if you want to say, okay, there's a right and a wrong, or there's a, there's a quantitative way of looking at this, or there's a P value in here somewhere. Like when you want to kind of pull things apart like that, you sometimes do have to, and I don't mean to belittle that. I think it's just sometimes easier to look at things more simply and so you pull off the physiology, physiological piece. And so you, you're studying stress and you say stress is a, as a physiological phenomenon. But you also know that stress is a cognitive phenomenon. And there's, you know, theories around, you know, the cognitive appraisal theory, for example, that really doesn't have a lot to do with the physiological piece. But then you have also uh, stress as a cultural phenomenon. And, and if you're in different cultures, then stress is experienced differently. And, and then you have the whole alignment of the person, right? And how how they sometimes feel like fractured, but they don't know what exactly what part of that is, is the sense of feeling fractured. Like you feel, you don't feel right, or you don't feel, you feel stressed in some dimension, but you're not exactly sure how to think about it or experience it. And I think what's happening lately is bringing some of these pieces back together to experience, to look at, look at the subjective experiences of, the the person and rather than say all oh, subjectivity it's not that important i think subjectivity might be where it's at in many ways and uh yes to kind of get get the some research in the unidimensional domains is important and it informs us i think there's something also to be said for bringing bringing the pieces together as the whole person at that person level and and then and then that person goes into a team 
And then that all of those, all of those individuals have the same things and the same multidimensionality to them. And then you put them together. It's really interesting to start thinking about that. I don't know if there's a unifying theory. I, I'm, you know, I'd love to find one. We've, we've recently, I have a, a PhD student, uh, Sydney McQueen, who's been studying stress in surgery. And um, we've really struggled with these concepts lately because she initially started it as a physiological phenomenon and went into the ORs and, and wired up the surgeons with heart rate monitors. And, you know, we'd, we'd be measuring the heart rate variability and we'd measure cortisol levels. And we started appreciating that the that the stress was sometimes experienced by surgeons, but there was no change in physiology and then vice versa. The, the physiological, physiological parameters showed that the, that the individual was experiencing stress, but, but they didn't feel it. So that there was something else going on. And I think that's where some of these other dimensions come into it. So, you know, we often say we don't want to be subjective or we kind of uh, think subjectivity is anecdotal or, not that valid, but I think in some phenomena, when you're studying it on a multidimensional level, I think subjectivity is actually very important. Yeah, I, I completely agree, actually. And, and you know, there's, there have been some recent papers on assessment and bringing back subjectivity because maybe the objective measures that we've been really focused on have so much error in them or maybe, maybe don't capture the personalized aspect of, of uh, performance in life that we need to think more about the about the person so there's definitely there's definitely a role yeah Um, i mean it's sometimes really hard to break up a like say performance metrics a lot of the the times when i've studied expert judgment or expert performance it's difficult to if you're looking at it from the subjective or looking at it from a multi-dimensional perspective it is sometimes difficult to have metrics that you can that you can kind of definitely measure right and put numbers on and I think I think for, because of our pursuit of, again, trying to simplify it, I mean, you, you don't want to keep everything complicated either. So you try to simplify things, you try to put uh, numbers or values on things, and then you want to show improvement. That's and, and sometimes I think that that's a very good thing, because even if it's not perfect, it's something and it's shown us something to kind of strive towards. And it helps us, you know, learn what the good behaviors are and and everything, but it's not everything, right? It's, there's something, you know, I think some thought has to go into what is missing in this measurement, you know, it doesn't show everything. It might show something, it shows part of the story, but, but perhaps not all of it. So that question of, of what are we missing is also important. And then one of the things I've always been fascinated about, and your work really speaks to me on, on this is that, is that people can be deceptive as well, when you're observing them or when you're working with them. And I think you're, I'd be interested to hear more about identity formation and multiple cells, but it's the, it's the cloak of confidence that has always stuck with me as something that's really interesting in that surgeons and, and professionals, in fact, everyone needs to present some kind of front, yeah, um, a, de- a description or an, almost an idealized image of who they are. Yeah. Um, but, but that can change in different circumstances. And I wonder if you've, if you've seen that play out. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I was fascinated by this theory. It must have been probably 2010 after my PhD when I started studying the social phenomena. So, you know, I, I picked up the work um, by Ir- Irving Goffman, oh. uh, who's a Canadian 
sociologist slash psychologist. It's hard to know. I think there's been discussion about exactly what he is, but definitely a social psychologist or a, a, a sociologist. But he started writing and studying this interaction that people have on an individual to individual level and especially studying the front that they put out. So talked about the metaphor of acting. The front stage is, is what you want people to see and the backstage is how you feel on the inside, I think. I mean, that's the way I've kind of, you know, that's the way I view it. So if I were to walk into a patient's room as a surgeon, I want them to see a, a part of me and I, I put forward a front. Some of Sometimes that's to console them. Sometimes that's to comfort them. And so I think sometimes you put out a front that might be not, you know, exactly how you feel because you want to, um, you want to help them in some way. And then other times I think you're just, you know, you're not able, like in the operating room, if you're putting out a front and you're resident, you don't want to kind of admit that you don't know something. You might be putting out a front of confidence when you shouldn't be, you know, because it, mm-hmm. it brings everybody, it makes everybody think that you know what you're, what's happening. And sometimes you, you're stuck in a rut and you can't actually ask for help if you feel like you have to put out this, this, you know, I know everything front. So I think it's, uh, it gets us in trouble as surgeons to not know when, when we can take these fronts off and, and how do we take them off? How do we change them? And I think we change them all the time. Like we come home and we change the the front, you know, we, we become, and it, it comes to our identity, right? We're, our, we're all kind of multiple identities, but you walk into a boardroom as a, as an administrator and you, and you probably should put on some kind of front. You know, I, I used to think as I've studied it, is there a certain front that we should be putting on or why can't we all be authentic and, and natural, right? And I, and I think, you know, maybe that's, I think that's probably a bit Pollyannish of me to think that, you know, let's just be normal and natural. I'd love to feel like we can all just be authentic, but I think there are sometimes expectations that we put on each other and, and probably for good reason. Like if you're in the OR and you have, and you're in trouble and, and you, you know, you'd know this, you know, more than me, but you want to uh, show people that you have things under control and then you have, you know, the team that kind of comes alongside and you don't want to, you know, panic and, and exactly express how you might be feeling on the inside. So I do, I think you do have to teach people how to put the fronts on and explicitly and deliberately take on, you know, put on fronts and then change them in different settings. So if I'm putting a cloak of confidence on for a patient's sake, because I feel like the patient needs me to be confident, if I'm not truly confident, I can come out of the room with a medical student and I can tell the medical student, I can teach the medical student about that interaction. And then I can show the medical student that I'm going and walking across the hallway to talk to a colleague because I'm not exactly sure. I just want to make sure we're doing the right thing. But there might be value in, you know, putting on that cloak of confidence to the patient. You know, again, I've learned the hard way. I mean, sometimes with patients, I'd say, okay, let's just be completely authentic with patients. And, you know, sometimes that's not what they want. They want you to make decisions sometimes, you know, or help them make decisions. And sometimes that is, you know, coming down harder on one side or the other and not actually kind of in, not exactly, you know, sitting with them in, in kind of indecisions. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating line to 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 be able to to walk, and you of course have to know something about the context or the or the culture. I yeah. I do I do I'm kind of interested in in this, and I'm 
interested in your reflections, having studied surgeons and thinking so deeply about these topics over so long, has it affected or influenced your own behaviour in clinical behaviour or behaviour outside of the operating theatre? Yeah, it has, you know, I think probably in many different ways. So let me just try to think of that. I, I do know that I went through a period, as I said before, like trying to be authentic and and probably admitting to, you know, the, the theatre team or the OR team whenever I felt some indecision or whenever I felt that I wasn't sure of something and I would talk about it to the fellow or, or bring somebody else in. And I started appreciating that the, the culture wasn't really ready for that. And, and I, I started feeling like, you know, some of these fellows may not have respected that kind of discussion. And so, you know, I, I, I do it more deliberately now and I, and I, I do not let it affect the patient. So I know that there's a, if I, if I need help and want to ask another opinion, I will get that opinion, but there's a way of doing it. And there's a way of, you know, maybe, you know, talking about it in the OR so that you get the opinion, which is what you need and the patient needs, but you don't have to necessarily put your reputation on the line, which is kind of interesting. It's almost backward of what I'm saying, right? I think we're not ready for the authenticity piece yet all the time, but there's some fellows who I would operate with who I feel I can be authentic with. And I teach that too. So, you know, I think it's a matter of, you know, understanding, you know, teaching as much as you can about this to your fellows without actually throwing yourself under the bus in the meantime. <laughs> and I teach, I teach to the residents that too. Like, you know, it, it, it would be naive of me to say, and I have, I used to teach them, to just be authentic, you know, but I, that's not a bit naive of me to say that in the culture that's kind of, that remains where good surgeons know and good surgeons are confident. And, you know, so you're wanting to shift the culture, but at the same time, you don't want to throw yourself or other people under the bus while it's shifting. Does that make sense? It definitely does. I mean, it sounds like it's situational as yeah. well. And, and also it's something that Ken and I, I'm going to pass down in a, in a, in a moment, but something that Ken and I are really, interested in is the is the tacit knowledge and experience and it's fine being an experienced person and thinking this is just the way you do it but it's actually much tougher as you're in early stages of your career looking up and and knowing you don't have that experience you haven't had the ten thousand hours or whatever doing exactly. your tasks yeah. Um, yeah no i think that that is a big part of it i mean one of the things that i think i've seen is uh, in our what we call M&M meetings or, or morbidity mortality meetings or, or quality assurance meetings, some discussions where some senior surgeons can be quite open about their mistakes or the way they feel now about a, about a situation where they could maybe admit that they see things differently or should have seen something differently and admit an error. And then we say, wow, that person's so amazing you know, they, they're so, they're so honest and that's how you kind of feel about it. But then at the same time, they have the reputation intact. They've already developed their reputation. It's, it's harder for a young person to take on that same kind of vulnerability, you know, unless we allow it, unless we have a culture that, that fosters it. I mean, one of the iron, the iron, the, the ironic things that I started seeing when I was, studying this idea of coaching in surgery. I thought, I thought coaching was something that 
you know, to become an expert, why are we not embracing this whole culture, culture of coaching? And I knew that there was a cultural component to that. Like there was something in our culture that stopped us from embracing coaching. And so I studied it among surgeons uh, with interviews and asked them, you know, would they feel the need for coaching? I and mean, a lot of them beyond their middle years felt that they needed coaching. They, they have either learned as much as they could learn or they got to the point where they wanted to take on something new and they, they would actually welcome and, and think that they would improve if they actually took on a coach, but their culture wouldn't allow them to take on a coach or their perception of the culture anyway. So they, the irony is that the appearance of being an expert or the need to appear to be expert actually prohibits you from being an expert. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's the, you know, you're, you're trying to put out the front that you're an expert. And so because, hmm. because of that need to say that you're the expert, you know, you can't have a coach and you can't then become an expert really. Yeah, that completely. Yeah. And we find that little in our, in our work until you then look at almost every other professional industry or sport and realize that the people in the, in mid late career sports people, executives, even surgeons have coaches because they want to stay at the top and they have this growth mindset where they can still learn and improve. And it's, uh, it's not for the people who are failing. It's, it's, uh, exactly. I mean, it is, it's really interesting and, and very sad, you know, I don't know what it is in our culture where we have to perpetuate that, you know, but what surgeons would say to me, you know, you, you, in the OR, you feel like you have to be the big dog expert and that's what you're respected for. And then if you were to admit that you weren't, or if you were to, not even that if you were to admit that you weren't, but if you were to have somebody there coaching you, that basically is telling everybody in the room that you're not the big dog expert. And it's a real, uh, I think things are shifting. I mean, we've talked about coaching now in surgery more than we ever used to. And people are making, you know, headways to changing the culture, I think, but it's, you know, it's slow and it's a shame when you actually when you see the irony in it, you realize, you know, kind of how silly we are in this culture to accept something like that. Like, of course we want coaching. Of course we need to be taught. Like you you can't, you can't come out of training and then 30 years later still be the expert. I mean, you have to have some kind of way of keeping on top and learning and embracing and, and failing and then learning again. And it's, it's this cycle that we have to, we have to embrace, you know, like it's like seeking feedback. I mean, we're not good at it. We don't like it. You know, we don't like giving feedback and we don't, uh, we're not good at it and we don't really seek feedback because we don't really, you know, maybe not used to hearing, hearing people tell us what they think, you know, or we're afraid of what they're going to say. It's like our identities are kind of built around being expert, you know? And so, whatever comes in as information that tells us differently or conflicts with that, it's too hard. It hurts. It's just too hard. It's like one of the, I think problems when we have complications, one of the, the main reasons I think why it's so hard to take is that it, that it hits our perception that we are expert, right? Like we've made a mistake or, you know, we feel shame because I think we're not, or, or, you know, we're either feeling shame ourselves and feeling like, you know, our, our 
identity is being threatened as the expert surgeon or our reputation of that, you know, uh, identity, right? Like we fear our reputation as well. There's both. There are our own feelings of ourselves and there's the, the feelings that we fear of our colleagues uh, about ourselves. And so then when you start talking about it and start thinking about it, like we're and talking to surgeons about it and hearing how they sometimes struggle with all of this, like we can be really sick. Like we can, it's, it can be a tough, it can be a tough profession if we don't, you know, start understanding some of these things and start helping each other with them and start changing the culture a little bit to help to make it a bit more um, uh, well, you know, like the pursuit of excellence includes, um, you know, changing the culture towards one that embraces us as multidimensional people and as, and people who can make mistakes and people who can seek feedback in coaching. Ken, you had yeah. some thoughts on, on this coaching and, and thinking about the, the future. Yeah, well, at times marching on, I'd, I'd love to go a lot deeper into all this. I think I think you're right, Caroline, that the, the culture is definitely changing. I mean, I think now at the coalface, there's probably a lot more respect for for people in the in the senior people as well in the M and M who say yeah I I failed there or that could have been better and some, and asking for help and so on I think there's probably more likelihood of respect for that now than respect for being impervious and mm-hmm. thing. I think I, I definitely detect that the the culture has been shifting I think you're I'm sure you're right there. I mean, I think it has been shifting. I think we still have a way to go. Um, right. You know, I'm still hearing a lot of stories. And, right. and even, you know, when the culture changes, there's still, you know, I, I think a lot about the internal view, like, you know, a view of yourself that you've internalized or the expectations of yourself that you've internalized versus actually what people are saying. Mm. You know, I might be on call with somebody and I might feel and say to them, call me anytime. But for some reason, they still feel they still struggle to call me anytime. You know, it's that that kind of yes, you're you're shifting the culture and you're telling people to to call right and and wake me up. I'm fine. I go back to sleep or easily. You know, you're trying to reassure them to do all of those things, but then they still struggle to do it for whatever reason. So it's it's like a it's that link between yes, the culture is changing, and then everybody else has to to shift how they feel about themselves in this changing culture, like, you know, get over that, the internalized feelings of success or something. Absolutely. Well, I guess in in the time that's left, Caroline, can I just ask you one more thing? So you mentioned when we chatted the other week that, you know, a lot of people in Sergio get to a certain stage and start to think about legacy. I wonder if you could just say something about that and have have you got any thoughts about how to you know how to have a healthy attitude to nurturing a legacy i mean legacy is something that i've been thinking about lately my thoughts aren't completely formed around it but i i think as i'm approaching the you know mid to later years of my career you know i'm starting to think about this idea of loss of identity I would love to study uh, older surgeons uh, as they retire and and see how they 
manage that kind of loss of the surgical identity and and how that is experienced by them. I think there are different ways of of experiencing that from what I've been seeing in my colleagues. Um, some people, you know, find it really tough and they they either leave and and struggle or they they hang around and they're at meetings until they're hundred and you can kind of see them, you know, hanging on to that identity. And others just say, you know, see you later. I have, uh, I'm going sailing or I'm going, you know, I'm doing something else with my life. I'm going to hike the Himalayas or something. So, you know, I think I've been wondering how, what am I going to be like and how, how do we teach this, um, this better to kind of ease into that, the later years and what do we do with the surgical identity and that, um, you know, I think a lot of it has something to do with finding, you know, meaning and keeping meaning in your life that's some, with something outside of of medicine. Uh, having something to look forward to and having something to go to helps with that piece. But then the whole legacy pieces, you know, if you, you know, you're leaving and then that's it. I think it's just kind of like a door slamming and then that feeling like you've, you know, we live and breathe this uh, often, right? Most of us do. And yeah. that that feeling of a waste if you just kind of walk away and and what does that what does leaving a legacy actually look like i think some people have thought about it and some people have you know done it well and you know sometimes it's done well because they they've thought about it and other times it's it's i guess a fluke that it just happened that they left an amazing legacy and and that others kind of go away and and haven't really thought about it and so i'm just starting to think about this idea of legacy and I think it has something to do with in, incorporating, again, those multidimensional aspects of ourselves and becoming becoming one with all of those things and, you know, seeking meaning in life and passing on that pursuit to other people and then leaving kind of with a legacy and, and, and influencing other people and moving on to do something that you have wanted to do and that you also find meaning in in your later years in a different kind of way whatever that may be but I think this idea of a legacy is an important one to actually be able to leave and lose the surgical identity they're kind of linked yeah well we could have a whole other podcast on that couldn't we Caroline I think you've already shown us something of the fantastic legacy you've been making plenty more time as well You've made such a difference to patient safety and surgeons and surgical teams' well-being. I think we're going to have to leave it there, Steve. I'm afraid so, and it's been such a pleasure as well hearing some of the insight behind the papers and behind the person as well, Caroline. So really thank you for coming on and telling us about your work. Yeah, you've been so eloquent. Thanks a lot, Caroline. Okay, Bye-bye.